time when film criticism is as provocative as ever, Feelin' Film ventures to change the discussion from what we hate about a film to what we love about it. We judge more on emotional experience than technical merit, because every movie makes us feel something. Welcome, listeners, to a very special episode of the Feelin' Film Podcast. Here in episode 44, we are wrapping up our five-week journey of Nolan Month by discussing this most recent film, Interstellar, with special guest and friend of the show, Andrew Dice of, Sc- of Screen Rant. We've had a fantastic time talking our way through Christopher Nolan's films so far, and it's fitting that we have someone joining us for, for this one who is both a huge fan of the film and also an exceptional writer with great thoughts. Andrew, it's awesome to have you back on, man. Uh, I'm I'm thrilled to be here. I will I will concede that I might be exceptional in one definition of the word, uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but um, no, I mean I've uh, I I'm happier to be maybe returning to discuss a specific movie because I feel like if we did a revisit of the topic we covered, we would we just end up like hugging each other and telling each other it was going to be okay. Um, <laughs> But no, I mean, I, I love the episodes you guys have done uh, and so many of these. And Christopher Nolan, uh, I think this is a great idea to to watch his movies kind of in sequence um, and just kind of see how his voice has changed, what's the same, what's different. And I'm this is, you know, not only one of probably my favorite um, in terms of like greatness, because you're throwing the word great out there. I'll say that this is, might be, in my opinion, Christopher Nolan's greatest movie. Um wow. Nice. But it's also one of my it, it probably it is one of my favorite movies uh and and my opinion is completely personal just because of what this movie tackles and and uh the kind of ideas that it puts forward and the values that it has that are rare. So if I was going to talk <laughs> one of these movies as much as I would love to talk about the Dark Knight uh, and the Prestige uh, and hear more of that Michael Caine impression <laughs> that I'm sure ended up on the cutting room floor. Um, I'm glad. I'm glad it's this one, and I'm psyched to talk about it. Awesome. Well, we're glad to have you here, uh, Andrew. It's uh, it's it's bittersweet for us because you know we could talk about Chris Nolan's movies you know forever. This could be a Chris Nolan podcast if we if we really let it go there. But thankfully, he has a limited palette of uh, of movies, and it's good that this last one that we're reviewing is going to be with someone who. Uh, holds it so dear in his heart. Now, this is the first time that you've been on a full-on episode. I think the last time we had you on a special mini-sode where we just dove right into the topic of fan criticism and all the good stuff that came with that. But um, So this is the first time you've been on like a full-on episode. And as we like to do, we like to kind of catch up a little bit and uh, find out what we've been up to this week from one another. So being our guest, our special guest, I'd like to know um, what have you been up to this week? Uh, well, what I've once the storm of the whole Ben Affleck uh, Batman universe, um, let's just say maybe we've reached the eye of that storm. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, know, knowing this industry as I do, um, but I mean, yeah, I've been uh, I've been dealing with that and kind of trying to bring a level head to, uh, to many people's less than level thoughts. Um, but that makes it all the better when I have good stories to watch. And I think if you've been following me on Twitter or know anything about me, you know that the past few weeks have been all black sales all the time. Uh, I'm not sure. I don't know if you guys have mentioned having seen the series at all. Have you seen Stars' Black Sales? I have not. I haven't either, no. I know it's a pirate story of some kind. It is. 
Yeah, I'm, uh, and that's kind of what I thought. Of, you know, Stars was the Spartacus network uh, in my mind <laughs> before uh, <laughs> having seen this, and I figured it was going to be some of the same. And uh, I, I figured, you know what? At some point, I need to just see something about pirates, and uh, I threw that on, and it seemed like a fun pirate show for the first season, and then. We're entering the fourth now, but by the second season, I thought this show is just terrific. And by the third, uh, I was convinced that this is just one of the best stories I've ever seen uh, on television. Um, it has really put into perspective what I already knew, which is that awards and accolades for television actors and shows is is as much about business and marketing and just plain old dollars spent uh, as it is the, the quality. Uh, and I know we're in awards season now, but... Um, this show has just kind of convinced me that a great performance is what you think it is. And when a lot of people agree on one that is great, you don't really need an award because that's probably not why the actors do it in the first place. But to go back to the actual show, um, it starts off as a, as a fun kind of Pirates of the Caribbean-esque uh, just adventure. And then before long, it became pretty clear that what the uh, the co-creators and the, the writers uh, really, I'm trying to, how do I word this simply, about it is an exploration of the darkness that can be found in leaders and different kinds of leaders, uh, but it's kind of all the same darkness, um, which, is a, which is a human darkness. And uh, for, for people who are Treasure Island fans out there, the show is officially a prequel um Ooh. to that story uh i i've read probably like most people i read treasure island when i was like a, a preteen or uh when i was in the audience that robert louis stevenson was writing for um and the uh evil captain flint who was kind of dealt with by the time that story begins uh this is his story and you meet a young man by the name of john silver uh who is just john silver at this point um and yeah, I, I, it is a real shame because people always say, you know, they'll recommend a TV show and I start to watch it. And maybe it's just not my kind of thing or, or it doesn't really explore things to the level that I would like. And they say, well, you got to keep watching because it gets better. And in my mind, I always interpreted that as you got more invested in the show. So, of course, it got better. You know, that's kind of why we continue reading these books or watching shows or right. watching movie series. Right. Um, this one is kind of defined, <laughs> redefined that for me where I might actually stop and think, does it actually get better? Because Black Sails is a show where the performances were all good, but everything around that got better and better and better as the show went on. And I'm talking like, you know, late in the first season, they bring in a cinematographer who ends up directing episodes in the second and third season and are some of the best, um, that they start just everything about the show becomes more accomplished. The gratuitous uh, nudity. This is not a show to watch with your <laughs> younger <laughs> family members uh, because it was on stars to begin with. And that was kind of giving the people what they wanted to some extent. Uh, and then we get into the third season and the idea of there being anything gratuitous uh, is just absurd. It is a character drama on the level of, uh, you know, the best films that I've seen that do it led by Toby Stevens the whole way, who is just one of the best actors I've ever gotten the pleasure of seeing. Um, and uh, yeah, now they're starting the fourth season, which is the final season. And th that was, by all accounts, a decision made on the part of the showrunners, which I'm sure you guys can appreciate, where 
they said, you know, it feels like we're coming to the ending of the story and this just needs to be the ending. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, not, yeah. Yeah. I, I wish, and Aaron and I have talked about this, um, a few times about, I wish that, that showrunners had that option where they would tell networks, this is how long the series is going to be. It's going to be three seasons. And then yeah. networks would just commit to that as opposed to just sort of being at the mercy of ratings and yeah. not, not letting shows complete or having lags or, you know, putting in filler episodes and shows like lost were kind of victims of this because of the writer's strike Definitely. and things like that. But, you know, I, I love hearing that there are opportunities out there for creators and showrunners to be able to say, this is a finite story as most stories should be. And it has a beginning, middle and end. And this is how we're going to tell it. So mm. that's very, very cool. Yeah. There's a, and even in the, uh, in the second season, it was the moment where I was it, the hooks were completely set in because you get a glimpse into the backstory of, of the main characters. And as is usually the case with knowing someone and thinking, you know, them, uh, the truth of their past is completely different. Uh, recontextualizes everything you know about them and it was a big twist and uh, in an interview recently uh, the, the one of the creators said that we wanted to put that twist in the first season we were considering because we wanted to hook viewers with kind of a not a twist but a, a change in the status quo and uh, on the part of the studio their response was I don't care yet um, which I feel like is, is a big you know make me care like, and I think that is just a fantastic, uh, you know, from a from a network standpoint to say it's great that you've got this coming. Um, and I think that is the, the biggest thing for me and why I would recommend the show is uh, a word uh, in is purposeful. Like everything in the show feels purposeful and there is no feeling better in the world than when you are in the hands of a director like. Christopher Nolan or Quentin Tarantino run the gamut if you know that what they're showing me is exactly what they want me to be seeing and thinking and feeling and yes this is going to go where I know it is going to um, that is the best feeling in the world and when you get into shows like Lost or the ones that kind of get stretched out because they have a lot of people to employ and mm -hmm. a lot of fun stories to tell uh, you get that sense of there is not a purposefulness you know to the storytelling that's happening. Uh, mm -hmm. And that is just, if you are a fan of, of feeling like you were in the hands of master storytellers, um, Black Sails, find it where you can. Uh, it, it stars, stars app and all of that. And it is a rare time where I will say to somebody, watch the first season for fun when you can find time. Uh, and then be prepared for the second season for it to get a lot better. And by the time you get to the end of the third and the fourth, uh, you can send me a thank you on Twitter. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> That's great. That's great, man. Thanks, Andrew. Well, uh, Aaron, what about you? What have you been up to this week? Well, a uh, couple of guest episodes, actually. I, or Well, I guess not a couple of guest episodes. I got to record a couple of extra episodes. One was uh, The Founder. So I went and saw that movie, which has been just tanking at the box office for... I don't know why. I mean, my guess is honestly that people just are not interested in going to see a movie about a ruthless businessman that rises to power and basically <laughs> takes over America because um, that's what happens in The Founder. <laughs> and uh, kind of that's what's happening in real life. So, um, yeah, you know, it's a, it's an interesting film because it's 
very good. It's very well made, I guess I should say. Performances are amazing, and it, it, it felt in a lot of ways like Oscar bait. Like it was intentionally built to be an Oscar nominee. Well, yeah, Michael Keaton's in it, so well, it's going to get an that's Oscar, pa- right? And that's that part the- of it, right. And this, <laughs> and this has to be one of my favorite performances by him, honestly. I mean, I hated him. I don't know, Patrick, if it was you or someone else, but I remember texting a couple people right after I got out of it just saying, man, I just his performance was so amazing, I just want to go punch him in the face. Like that's he, he was so raw and so real that I, I was reacting, and I probably would have you know, if I'd seen yeah. him. I was so angry at this guy. I didn't get that text. Okay. <laughs> I would remember that. <laughs> I would um, remember that. I, I didn't know the story of what this film is telling, the, the backstory of the McDonald's history. I didn't know where the name came from. So learning all of that was just really, really interesting. And uh, I recorded that on a, a podcast called Screenfish. And I don't know when it drops. I think probably a week or so from now. But I'll I'll put social media links out when it does for anybody that wants to check it out. Um, the other one that we recorded this past week was a mini-sode for our show. Uh, Blaine Grimes, one of our reoccurring guest hosts, came on with me to discuss Silence. And so previous to that, I went and saw Silence for the second time. My first viewing of Silence was at, the, at night, uh, late at night. And it was a much more difficult watch because it's a slow-moving drama with not a lot of action uh, this time I went at noon <laughs> intentionally uh, to try and be a little more awake, and it was much, much better. I think I got to stay more engaged with the film on the whole. Andrew, have you seen it by chance? I have not. That's on my long list of Oscar movies that I didn't get a chance to. You guys went up me on. <laughs> okay. Well, it's you know it's one that I will say, despite being completely gorgeously shot – um, it's, it's one of those films that I would never tell people you need to rush out and try to find the one showing that's going on locally right now, because it'll be just as good on your you know 40 inch TV at home. I think, uh, that being said, yeah, it's a, it's a really powerful movie and it impacts me personally in a big way just, uh, because of my faith background. And so we wanted to get a chance to talk about that. Um, that episode came out last Thursday, I believe, on our show. That was a lot of fun. And then the movie that I watched this week that really has stuck with me the most was I rewatched The Social Network on a whim. Uh, It was one of those times where I just kind of looked up on my shelf of movies that I own, and I I never watch the ones I own, which is a really weird thing. I don't know if you guys do that, but (laughs) you you always try to watch... Eye candy. It's all eye candy. You don't really need to watch them, right? (laughs) Well, Patrick, you and I were having this conversation just last week, and this is what triggered this, about how we tend to be in a hurry to watch all the new stuff, right? Because we want to talk about the new movies, and I'm always watching new things. I think I watched... 100 movies in 2016 that were just from 2016. And I have all of these great films that I own and and ones that are dear to my heart that I never really rewatch. And so part of this Nolan month rewatch was really just bringing this up in me like, hey, man, I want to go back and watch some of these movies that that I love. And so I figured, what the heck? And I, I threw Social Network in. Uh, based on Patrick's choice, actually, it was between Social Network and Gladiator, and he uh, he chose Social Network. And man, reluctantly, it was, yeah, a tough oh, it was but it, it was, was so a, it was good. Great. I had forgotten how great it was. Just right off the bat, it pulled me right back into the story. I, I'd forgotten how amazing the score was. Uh, I think it, it was done by Trent Reznor. 
now that I, you know, recall. Yeah. And it, it is just phenomenal. The acting across the board and, and seeing a young, you know, Andrew Garfield and uh, just – it was such a, a fun, awesome watch for me to go back to it, uh, knowing the story already and, you know, getting to, to see it on a different level, just like with these Nolan films. You know, you already know what's going to happen. You can, you can watch things more closely. Um, and it really brought up a, a question in me just about embellished storytelling in general because – I realize that the social network does not actually tell us a, it's not a documentary telling us a beat for beat story of exactly how Mark Zuckerberg's life was. And uh, Patrick and I got into a long conversation about this and how, you know, uh, screenwriters and Aaron Sorkin who wrote this film has specifically talked about having, they need to have the freedom to make things cinematic and make things interesting from a dramatic standpoint. Um, And sometimes your real life isn't going to quite, meet those requirements and and the question of you know is that okay is it okay to take some some license with history um, when you're actually putting a movie out there about a real life person that people are going to take for granted and believe it's true you know where does the responsibility lie and so it's just a a really fun conversation for us so that watching that movie got to generate and i that's one of the things we love about podcasting we hope that all of you listeners do the same thing you know with your friends and with people online is you know, that's what movies do. They bring up these questions and you get to have these, these great debates and conversations about them. So that's, that's pretty much what I've been up to, man. What about you? Very cool. Well, my, my family is, uh, is gone for about a week. My wife is visiting her mom who's in the hospital, uh, a state away. And as a result, my son is staying with some friends because I can't take off work, obviously. And uh, be a full-time dad. So what that's done is that's given me an opportunity to, um, you know, pick up the house, try to keep the pets under control. Uh, but along with that, I have decided to take a long look at the movies that I've wanted to see but haven't had a chance to, either because I haven't had the time or the money uh, I've missed in the theater or whatever. And so I have resurrected my Letterbox account that I opened like maybe two years ago and I made a list of, of movies that I want to see. You know, I aptly named it the, you haven't seen that yet list. And there's about 50 of them so far that are on there. It's always going to be changing because there's always going to be a movie that I want to see that I, you know, I haven't yet. And so starting like, I guess on Thursday or Friday, I started just knocking out these movies. Uh, so I started, I watched Sully, which I enjoyed quite a bit. Um, the company I work for, uh, it's an aviation company and, uh, their simulators were featured in the movie. So yay. Uh, good business there. I was happy to see that. Uh, and then I watched the Wolverine. Um, surprisingly enough, this was a Hugh Jackman film that I hadn't seen yet. And what? what? I, I, that's what I, I said. Tweeting about this. That's yeah, exactly man. the reaction that I had when he told me, Andrew, I was like, oh my gosh, are you kidding yeah. me? That is like that is like three quarters of the best Wolverine story ever. <laughs> <laughs> well, I can halfway agree with that. I, I definitely love the performance, Hugh Jackman's yeah. performance as the Wolverine. Uh, my favorite, uh, just as a side note of his, is Days of Future Past. I think that's probably the one that stands out to me as one that I would just watch more than a couple of times, just because the story's great and because his performance is great. But um, I watched uh, How to Train Your Dragon. I hadn't seen that. 
Um, and so I've just been going through these bit by bit, Hell or High Water, one that um, we uh, did a mini-sode on. Well, that our our show did a mini-sode on. Aaron did it with a, with a friend of ours. But it's just been really good to be able to go through these. And um, I have a tendency to want to be a completionist, like check stuff off my list. And so I start, I've, you know, I, I had to, I began to start kind of cranking through these and I had to kind of step back and go, okay, I want to enjoy the movies. I don't want to just check them off and say that I watched them. So um, I'll pop in maybe one or two if I have time in the evening. But um, yeah, so I've just kind of been revisiting that list and trying to uh, visit those movies that I hadn't seen. And um, if you guys go to my Letterboxd account, I'm Mr. Clover. You can search for me and you can see that list and you can uh, scold me for not seeing a lot of the movies that are currently on there. If they have a review, that means that I've seen them. So just FYI. But uh, that's been what I've been doing most of this last week. You can also help me campaign to have him change that name to Mr. Clover Field, which I'm actively <laughs> trying to make happen. Whatever. <laughs> I'll just call myself the Clover Particle. Mr. Clover <laughs> Particle or something. Nice. <laughs> Well, good stuff, man. I, I'm glad that you're on Letterboxd. Uh, it's about darn time. Yeah. I was on. I just went dormant for a good while. Right. Well, but I'm back. Are you guys ready to uh, get to the main event here and, and jump into this wormhole? Let's do it. Oh, boy, yeah. All right. Well, without you know being too obvious here, we're going to talk about spoilers. So please go away if you haven't seen Interstellar. Oh, <laughs> um, I don't know how there's probably a don't nicer. Don't leave way. me like this, Murph. <laughs> don't make me leave this way, Murph. <laughs> there's probably a much nicer way to say that, but um, yeah, just go away, go away, and uh, come back when you've seen the film. Uh, it is worth a watch, and it is worth a watch unsullied. So, oh yeah, or uh, watch the first thirty seconds of the movie and realize that the first thing his daughter says to him is actually the spoiler of the whole movie. That's that's what? actually the mind blow. That's so true, but yeah. So there, there's the spoiler warning. Uh, you've had it, and off we go. Um, so let's get initial impressions. I know you started a little bit, Andrew, in the opening here, talking about the fact that this was such a movie that was close to your heart and very important to you. So can you tell us a little more about what, why this one? Yeah, I'm. Uh, this was a movie where, I you know I think it, this debuted the first footage at Comic Con uh, a few years ago now, where it was the new movie from Christopher Nolan. He's going to space, uh, and you didn't really know what to expect from it aside from the fact that it was good, obviously, and that the cast assembled for it was pretty impressive. So I remember thinking this would be sci-fi. You know, like uh, brain scrambling science fiction on the same level of uh, Inception or something like that. But the the first trailer had me uh, – the only way I can say it is moved. Uh, that, that's kind of used now uh, as, as a cliche. Uh, you know, it moved me. But the trailer really did in a way that is surprising in hindsight because it's so minimalist. Um, it really was just the it – was, it was a first sign of how – he was using uh, evocative imagery with evocative music and evocative dialogue. And uh, for some reason, that was just a perfect mix that, that, that kind of shook me. Uh, I knew I was going to be in for something as emotional as it was intellectually stimulating. 
And the resulting movie, it, it kind of stands apart for me in Christopher Nolan's filmography uh, in a lot of ways. I don't feel like this movie, it, it might be the movie with the most heart that, that I think he's made. Uh, and that's saying something since, since you know, affection and love and friendship are kind of uh, pretty, pretty common themes in his movies. But this one does stand apart to me as a movie that I would even hesitate to call it science fiction because its pursuits are so intensely human. Uh, it is about what it means to be human, what it means to be... Uh, of earth, uh, of a people, of, you know, a family, um, love in all forms and kind of the, it's hard to talk about it with it sounding like cliche, uh, you know, the power of love or, um, you know, the, the weight of fatherhood or, or family and that kind of thing. But uh, this movie in theaters, I was reduced to, I can't even call it crying because I'm pretty sure that the moments everyone can probably, you know, predict there there are the heavy hitters in the movie, but the moments where I found myself still watching the movie the same way, but there were just tears. Uh, because what I was seeing was uh, resonating so intensely with uh, with something that I didn't even really know what to call. Um, you know, I might I might be a part in this review. I don't have children. Uh, I, you know, so I, I couldn't associate with Coop on a, uh, you know, I couldn't see myself in him, but I would dare to say, uh, and I might be wrong, but I feel like those moments didn't hit me any less, uh, th than someone who has been a child or, uh, anything like that. Um, I'm really, I'm really interested because you guys have talked so much about Christopher Nolan movies. I almost don't want to speak first because I want to hear how this one you know, compares or contrasts with the other one. But this was one that, and going back to rewatch it, this is just a a movie that makes me feel more human, uh, I think would probably be the way to say it, than most movies that I see, have seen, or probably will see. Uh, yeah. That's great. Yeah, that's great. Um, I, I love that you mentioned the parenting aspect, because that's part of my initial take on this movie as well. And kind of the first topic I wanted us to talk about anyway, is how that informs a viewing experience. And I love meeting you and the fact that you are not a parent and you love this film. Cause I was genuinely curious if that type of person existed uh, because the <laughs> theme is so strong. It, mm -hmm. I mean, there are other themes that are going on here to attach to, but there, there is such a strong theme of parenting and fatherhood and, such that I wondered if that would be kind of something that people just couldn't relate to. Um, ultimately, I, I figured they might be able to because, you know, everybody's got a parent, even if they aren't a parent. Um, but for me, I remember seeing it the first time in theaters and being a little bit underwhelmed. Um, I was not underwhelmed visually. I was not underwhelmed with the score. I remember it being too loud or what I thought was too loud at the time. There was a big controversy about that, uh, that the score was just over overpowering the dialogue at times. In hindsight, I know now that some of that may have been intentional, and it makes the film a lot better. And it also sounds a lot better now to me, watching it at home. Mm. But I, I was I was not blown away in the way that I kind of expected. I, you know, sci-fi being my favorite genre, coming off of Inception, <laughs> it was like, I, my expectations were unreasonable. 
probably kind of like they are for Dunkirk <laughs> now. Just there's, I don't know how he can actually meet them and that's unfair, but uh, yeah, I, I came out of it and I was, I was moved quite a bit, but not to the point where I was blown away. I then revisited it. When was it, Patrick? Was it last year that I finally revisited it after we talked about I, it? I think it was a year after you'd seen it. Okay, like so you, it, was a, it may have been like some, a year. Somebody, yeah, a friend of ours had given you the, hey, try it, try it again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so somebody encouraged me to give it another shot. And I did, and that's when I really just fell in love with it. Um, and it, and I was able to, again, it, it kind of goes to what I mentioned earlier about rewatchability of Nolan's films in particular, once you've seen it that first time and you know, the ending, you know, kind of the, the twists and the surprises, mm-hmm. you get to really latch on to those performances and really latch on to, as you mentioned, Andrew, the human side of the characters and what every individual is going through and why, um, you're not looking for plot points. You're just enjoying everything in the moment. And that made it an incredible experience for me. And since then it has just grown and grown and grown and become much, much tougher to place down on my Nolan list. I mean, to be fair, uh, you know, as we've gone through this, Patrick and I've talked several times about how it's almost like our favorite Nolan movie is the last Nolan movie we watched. Exactly. (laughs) Because they're all so good. And I mean, this is probably like number four for me, but those top four, I mean, are all in my top 25 of all time. Pretty, pretty much like they're, they're that good to me. So that doesn't mean it's, you know, what a traditional number four you would think of as. So, yeah, I, I love it. I really latch on to the parenthood aspect of this, having a 13 year old daughter and also having a son um, that's younger than her by a couple years. I, I was, I mean, really connected to this particular version of the story. I was, you know, a single dad, uh, as far as I'm a divorced and, um, you know, I'm a NASA pilot. So it, it all just, it all works, but <laughs> nobody caught that. <laughs> you guys are going to let it slide that I'm a NASA pilot. Okay. Thanks. I appreciate, appreciate that. But I yeah. just assuming that you're, you know, <laughs> don't believe his lies as Lenny would say, don't believe his lies. <laughs> but it, it is uh it is a powerful movie and it has just gotten better for me every single time. Patrick. Yes, sir. I, uh, I could just say ditto to everything that both of you guys have said. The one thing that stood out to me, I didn't get a chance to see this in the theater, and I wish I had because of just how big it is, how massive. And not just from an IMAX standpoint. We don't have a true IMAX screen in my town. We have what I call Limax, which is pretty much like just a big, giant screen that tries to be but doesn't. And for me, I think what what I gravitated towards, no pun intended, was the way in which Nolan cares for everything in the movie. So the themes alone are about caring and about making those sacrifices and doing all you can to make sure that the people that you care about are taken care of. And I feel like Interstellar, uh, as his latest and greatest film at at this point, really just magnifies that. Um, with the way in which he is so hands-on with small things, not small things, but just little things like the, the science behind Interstellar, like the, the scientific accuracy that he really wanted in it. Not so we could go down a 
you know, a Morgan Freeman, this is science kind of documentary type thing, but more of a, hey, I want people to connect as much as possible with the story. And so I want to create as few distractions as possible, but I still want to create that amazement of space. And, you know, even with, you know, the way the score is done, how he just encouraged Hans Zimmer to come up with something completely different, completely, you know, refreshed for for this film. I can see that in his evolution as a filmmaker, how much he cares for the stories that he tells and how meticulous he is in those uh, those stories. I, I'd like to, you know, I'm curious to know how he is on set. Is he is he kind of, a, you know, an overbearing <laughs> boss that says, no, it has to be this way, or is he a collaborator? I'd like to believe he's the latter, that he's a guy who puts people around him that want those same things, that want the best from their field of experience, from the cinematography point of view and from the, you know, the, the music point of view and the, the special effects and things like that. So as, as I'm watching this, I'm, I'm seeing an extension of who Christopher Nolan is as a director and as a creator within the story that's being told through Coop and how, how precious these things are to him. Not only just the, the themes of the film, but also just the, the, the craft that he, he does as a filmmaker. And as a, as a creator myself, I, I, I love that. It's so cool. Well, I would like to think that he has a good reputation as well because of one of the things we've talked about in past episodes of Nolan month, which is, you know, this is one of the few directors that has his guys. We -hmm. love, we love directors who have their crew, you know, whether it's, Nolan with Michael Caine. I'm not even going to go down the list. There's so many, but he has this <laughs> subset of actors that, that continually come back. Hans Zimmer continually comes back. Jonathan Nolan. I, well, I guess he kind of has to always come back. Um, but you know, Tarantino has that Jeff Nichols uh, with Michael Shannon. We see PTA and uh, Daniel Day Lewis, a common uh, duo doing things over and over. And I think when, I think that speaks to, people wanting to work with Christopher Nolan. So when we were talking about parenting, um, the first question I guess I want to pose is a little bit of a tough one. And that is simply, would we go or should we go? Should he have gone? Uh, Should he have left his kids knowing that he probably wasn't going to see them again for a very, very long time, if, if ever. And, and we can debate whether or not he truly actually believed he was going to or not. Um, or if that was a little bit of wishful thinking. Uh, but the question just being is, you know, the idea of seeing your kids when you die, uh, is humanity's way of struggling to stay alive a little bit longer really stuck with me in this one. That's one of the things that Dr. Mann talks to Coop about, uh, when he's trying to kill him, which is a little, a little awful, but um, that connective tissue of parenting and, and the bond between parents and kids. And, and the first question being is, would you, should, we, should he have gone, I guess, is really where I'm going with that. You want to take this one first, Andrew, or you want me to take a uh, crack at it? <laughs> no, sure. I mean, well, yeah, should. I mean, he saved, he saved us, so yes, but no. <laughs> um, no, I mean, I – accepting that I am grossly uh, underqualified to answer this question with any <laughs> reputability here. Um, I, I feel like the movie, the movie takes the stance that 
you, you or him or one would have to. Uh, you, you know, they, I feel like the it is a heartbreaking thing, and it, we we get that you know kind of pull from her to stay because we know it's it's kind of this battle of the heart with the mind, right? That the heart should tell you to stay, and I, I feel well. Hmm, let me try that again. The movie is dealing with the mind being at war with the heart, but I don't think they are opposed so much as swapping back and forth you know i mean his heart's telling him to stay but his heart's also what's telling him to go uh you know to to save this world for his kids because what good is staying with them if we die together and i think we get that revisited in in the later part of the movie uh with, with another father figure and i don't think we're supposed to view that father as uh wrong you know as much as matthew mcconaughey is right um I think that the the only challenge for me is that I remember distinctly seeing this movie for the first time and thinking probably what Coop was, which is I can pull this off and get back to them. You know, that, that I can do this uh, and that two years at first, okay, that's a bargain. You know, I'm, I'm willing to do that. It's seven or eight to ten you know, I, I can come back. My, my, my daughter knows who I am. My son knows who I am. Uh, and then it, it makes it so much more of a devastating moment uh, when I guess that's the lie that I was kind of telling myself and that he was telling himself, which was that you can pull this off. And then when they, you know, reveal this, the first complication of the mission with the, this decades passing, I remember distinctly the feeling in the theater of total defeat that this was now almost a pointless mission because how can he ever come back now? Uh, you know, it, it's almost like the, the game is over and it's been over for years before he even realizes it. Um, but I think that it's attached to the idea of like being a father, but he's even, I think explicitly says sometimes that I'm putting myself in the shoes of, you know, I'm the father to my kids, but also all of the fathers to all of the kids, all of the families that are going to rely on a person doing the hard thing. And we, we find out that he was a pilot, so he was prepared to, to kind of do that. But um, I think that him being a farmer is not a coincidence in, in that he is someone who has taken on this role of, of nurturing and cultivating for other people. Uh, and, and so this makes sense for him to do. If, if he was an engineer, it might be harder to buy. Um, but I think that someone who tills the earth uh, and, and raises his kids to do the same, if if they wish, uh, I, I bought it. I, I think that obviously in the, the course of the movie, he was right to go. But I feel like when I was watching it, I thought he has to go. Mm -hmm. Patrick, this would you agree with that? To an extent, I, I, I think this viewing had me thinking two things. And one of them had to do with my immediate circumstances where – my my wife and my child are in two different places than I am. So we're all three in different places. And it's because of circumstances that are out of our control. Mm. And I feel a sense of guilt sometimes because here I am, the one with the least amount of responsibility right now. I'm kind of back to bachelorhood. So, you know, I can yell right now and there's nobody in the house that's going to wake up or say, why are you yelling? And um, And I have, I'm not the one taking care of a, 
of a sick parent. You know, I'm not the one sitting in a hospital or trying to figure out how Medicaid's going to work or these these things that my wife, who is, you know, a champ at this, who doesn't want to do this either uh, for varying reasons because it's, you know, it makes her sad and other, other things surrounding that. And so for me, you know, when she asked me, she said, I want you to go with me. Um, in some ways, I felt sort of like how Coop did when he had to walk away from Murph, when he walked out of that room and drove away. And just this one moment of uh, as the, 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 the countdown is happening, as he's driving away, there's that kind of those two moments together. And you just see his face just well up with tears, how upset he is. Um, you know, I, I'm not saving the world right now. You know, this is not, I'm not Coop in this instant, but having to having to say no to the person that you you love and you care about, having to say there's something bigger that I have to do. I have responsibilities here that I have to maintain. I have a job that I have to continue to go to to make sure that that we are financially okay and that we are, you know, doing these, you know, making these these choices that are right. Those are hard decisions for me to make. Um. So to, the answer to that question is ambiguous at best for me. I, I think that I, I think that he needed to go because uh, something I picked up on this viewing was when Donald, his father-in-law, was sitting there talking to him just before he left, and he said, "You know, this isn't the life that you have that you need. This mm-hmm. isn't the life for you. This is, you know, you were either born forty years too early or forty years too late." Um, and he was really just emphasizing the fact that. Coop's not meant to be who he is. Now, I can I can definitely understand this idea of him being a farmer, but that wasn't by choice. I mean, he you could see the light in his eyes when he talks about rockets and when he talks about technology. And you know, when he goes into he's just in his element when he's piloting, you know, when he's doing the space stuff. And I think that for him, I think he needed to go for the bigger picture, but also for that smaller reason that it was what he was meant to do. Not save the world, but be that engineer in a, you know, in a, in a world that was not celebrating that or using that anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I'll just add something because I've, I've thought about it uh, a little bit here. I, I think a part of why it feels like he needs to go is, is it's kind of this almost like biblical like call to something greater. Uh, you know, those like combine or, or the farming machines that are all just gathering around him. You get the sense in like the first act <laughs> of a Disney movie yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. that something is building. Um, but but that being said, like when he gets to the end and it's all for naught, it seems. And he's just forced. With, it, it, that's the part of the book or part of the movie. There you go. That felt almost like a novel. You have this scene of being able to look back on where things started and seeing his daughter from the outside and having that moment of realization that I should never have gone. Mm. Uh, and that is such a very human regret. I mean, that that is what makes it so heartbreaking is that is just absolute condensed regret that I think, like you just alluded to, is kind of saved by the fact that he also realizes this was never about me. Mm. You know, that, yeah. that it wasn't me that was the important person and then he almost becomes a child to the actual the weird stuff happens there, but yeah, <laughs> <laughs> for, sure, for sure. Yeah. I think, um, for me, the parent, like I said, the parenting hits me really, really hard. The, the idea of leaving your kids for any reason, um, be it noble or 
necessary or not. And I really thought about it in terms of exploration. Uh, there's many who have sought out, sought out to explore and to um, pave a new path that, you know, it, this is a story where humanity needs this one mission to succeed in order to save it. Um, but there are many explorers who have gone out before that had to do the same thing in order to get us the knowledge that would ever lead to this point uh, that have failed. And those those explorers had to go out and leave their children as well. I'm reading a book right now called The Lost City of Z uh, that's actually got a movie coming out uh, this spring I'm really excited about. And it's a similar thing. It's it's about a very famous explorer who who sets out um, on this mission and, and never comes back, you know, and, and his kids end up going looking for him. Uh, but they, he never sees him again. He never come, We don't know what happened to him. And this just reminds me about all of those people that before Coop would have had to go forth to uh, explore and to, to, you know, discover new lands and new worlds as, as Star Trek would put it. Um, and then leave their kids behind in order to do that. And it's, it's a tough call. Um, it's, it's one of those situations where someone has to do it, but nobody really wants to do it. Everybody wants the other guy to do it. And, it, it takes a special person. And I think that's part of what makes Coop so amazing as a character is that he simultaneously uh, is built in a way or constructed by Nolan in a way that makes him that hero that we can root for uh, in that sense. But also, as you said, Andrew, that human connection to where I feel like he's just the guy I could go have a beer with right now. Mm-hmm. And it would be, we could just talk and, and hang out. Um, and that is a, a tough thing to do, to, to work that balance. Um, and he does it so well in this film. The The other big question that's, that's hard for you to answer that I want to ask, and I want us to kind of talk about a bit, is before, not counting the ending, but the other, <laughs> the other really <laughs> difficult thing is the film seems to say a lot about humanity driving the earth to the point that it's at. And this is also something big in science, you know, for, for several years now. Um, but we, we talk about global warming a lot. Um, we talk about the atmosphere eroding and things of that nature. And in this film, it's, it's humanity's way of life that has brought on this blight and these dust storms. What do you think about that? And the social commentary of the story, do you think that that's what Nolan's getting at? Is he trying to, in a sense, preach that message to us through this, this movie is he trying to warn us um i would say that i mean yes and no i i think he uses it as a primer to tell a story of hope i mean i couldn't tell you like you should have used this instead or you could have used that instead but we see that primer in the dark night as well uh we see a sense of uh night being darkest before the dawn um, because I think what he does is he wants to, I, I think what he does well and he does it in this movie is he puts, he puts two opposites together in order to elevate each one. Um, I especially liked the fact that he used <laughs> Ken Burns documentary footage from the Dust Bowl yeah. As, yeah. as a, as a means to, uh, to tell that story, not about the Dust Bowl, but even, I mean, it just it, the, the meta aspect of it is the fact that at some point Donald talks about <laughs> the Dust Bowl or somebody talks about the Dust Bowl previously. So 
the fact that he uses anyway it's, can you can you say coop's dad because every time you say donald talks i'm i'm sorry. getting these horrible images in my head okay like that no no that would be no. okay okay <laughs> so yeah coop's father-in-law um who uh who who talks about that but i think i think for nolan i think what he does is it's it's an obvious statement to be made but it's not one that i think he's saying look what you did i think what he's saying is here's where we are but look what we can do and i I think the theme of hope that exists in that, in that idea, is one that resonates in it, in his later films. Um, I don't want to try to pick it out of each one of them and say, yeah, that resonates through all of them. But I know that for the two that two of the three that we really value on a high level, um, both the Dark Knight and this one, that's a huge theme of saying, not just not here's what's wrong with the world, but here's what we can do in a world that's imperfect. We can make it better. In the case of Interstellar, you can leave it, <laughs> but, <laughs> but but still, there's a solution. There's this hope of a solution, and uh, I think hope as a whole, I think, resonates in this movie. Um, so I, I don't know that he actually is preaching. Here's what you're doing, bad world. I think he's just using that as a means to say we have opportunities to continue to grow because we are we live in an imperfect world, and we're striving to be better. Yeah, it's it's almost uh, counterintuitive, right? If you're if you're going for any sense of suspense, I mean, he opens the movie with footage of people explaining how bad things were, uh, people who are still alive and clearly ambitious enough to put together a documentary on <laughs> how bad things got for humanity before they presumably got better. Right. Uh, that's such an interesting frame of like how how the Dark Knight. Or The Dark Knight Rises would have changed if it opened with, you know, an interview of someone saying, I remember the day the Batman died. Oh, uh, man. You know, does it, the, the story doesn't change, but I think almost the, the way we are supposed to see it shifts into, uh, we know what we're supposed to take away from this when we get to the end of it. Um, but no, I, I, I don't know. It's It's so hard because the message of... Humanity killed Earth is such a profoundly uh, like sad one, for lack of a better word. Uh, just sad all around because, you know, well, I mean, any number of reasons. But uh, the story itself is it's a, it's a story of man versus nature, uh, obviously. I think that, you know, at some point it becomes man versus man. But the man versus nature, like we are so firmly planted on the man's side of this battle <laughs> that uh it's kind of willing like willfully limited uh like we're introduced to the idea that people today are not all that honest or intelligent um because the world doesn't require them to be you know we we what way does history best serve us so it's to say that it was a lie you know um but i don't think we're supposed to feel that those teachers are evil or or anything like that. I think we're supposed to view that with sadness, you know, at where humanity is, what it's been lowered to. Uh, so I think it was it was a wise move to specifically name the antagonist, which is the blight, right? Which it, it's it it reduces the earth to almost like a, an organism, um, and then in comparison, like the humanity becomes all that much more, 
fascinating by comparison. Uh, it's definitely a version of this movie that that could have emphasized global warming or or anything like that. But I think it is abundantly clear that that is there for people to take, and like that is a totally valid reading. I, I would say, and I think it, it there'd be a lot of interesting things to be said about that. But I think Christopher Nolan intends us to not think about anything other than the inevitability the inevitability that people need to leave and like you said that the, the despot you know tone and rhetoric um to call back to <laughs> when you read about the despot you don't read about the environmental damage or or you know opposition that that posed you talk about what it meant for humanity to overcome to endure to struggle and i think right. that's a really good yeah. way to start it because you know we know we're going to live through it but we also are shown that humanity might live through this in some really ugly uh unfortunate ways and we're kind of left in suspense until the end yeah i think the the fact that the opening sequence of the blight and everything that's happening or that sets you up is a very grounded concept because, and I, and I think what Nolan does is he says, okay, I need to, I need to ground this film because we're quite literally about to get very cosmic. But also I think that's why he wanted to, um, you know, stay as scientifically accurate or as scientifically mm -hmm. valid as possible so that, so that we could stay with the characters, so that we could stay with the story and not be distracted by, like, you know, had he opened it up by saying, um, the world was lost because zombies ate all the cows, you know, something like, you know, ridiculous. But he could he could have made it something fantastic, but he chose mm -hmm. to have it connect with something that, one, actually happened, uh, or at least a hint of something that happened. And, you know, it, it made it less distracting because at that point I was now invested in characters mm -hmm. not invested in well, what happened you know so it's it's, it's yeah a great and that, and that the the villain doesn't attack us right it attacks food mm -hmm. that, that makes it a very different like we need to leave then not we need to beat this right yeah i agree completely with all of that i think i love the opening sequence in particular i think uh, it's brilliant the way that it's you know it plays with the ending uh, as well um and just like you said, it grounds us and it gives us something that's non-space. It's very non-spacey. And, and, it, and it, I think that caught me off guard the first time I watched this, to be honest. I walked in and I was like, oh, this is a movie about space. And then the first thing I'm learning about is this farming on the ground, you know, and it, that's very different from space. It's, it's, it's almost the opposite. You know, it's almost a prehistoric look at the earth. Um, I also love the opportunity from a visual standpoint of what can be done with, that specific type of occurrence uh, on the earth. We get so many great visual sequences in this movie on other planets, but it, it would be remiss to not, you know, mention how awesome the shots of the dust are. And I mean, I mean that awesome in a way that's, you know, visually stunning, not, you know, happy, but, um, you know, we get the water wave on the water planet coming up. That that's just an incredible, um, thing to see and mm. on earth we get similar type shots um with going through the cornfields and you know almost coming to the edge or coming up to the edge of the cliff and then almost the truck almost driving off of it there's just there's so much beauty in the way that he he captures the blight 
attack, so to speak. There's there's a scene where they're driving through town, and you can see them park. Uh, Murph and her boyfriend are parked, and this this attracted me this time. And I was they were talking, and instead of watching them, I was watching the windows, and I was watching this dust like just yeah. come splattering up on the windshield. You could really feel how heavy it was, and that kind of attention to detail, I think draws me in so much and it just it makes my emotions that much stronger for what i'm seeing uh, yeah. and he does, I, correct me he if does i'm wrong so good uh it's almost always like devoid of music right when, we, when we're seeing that wave or the sand I, I i so vividly remember the silence on that water planet of the actual water and thinking that you know something is wrong with my speakers um or, or with the sand, you just hearing the sound of it, like music is reserved for life in this world. And when the sand is just whipping around, it is kind of like if you were caught in yourself by, you know, by yourself, you, it, it feels wrong to listen to the radio when that kind of thing is happening. It, you, you kind of almost need to just dwell in like, I am brought low again. Like this thing has beat me, you know, like in a blizzard. Oh yeah. Uh, the people who have that, you just have to stop and let it do its thing, kind of. Oh yeah, yeah. I, I think you're. I think you're right, and it it is. It's an absence of for such something that has such an incredibly powerful score. Yeah. Um, and it, it's that when there is an absence of sound, specifically also in space, this this film treats space like real space. Um, this is something Patrick and I talked about often when we're watching uh, Battlestar Galactica, we've been going through that series over the last year and it's that silence. That's not that huge boom crackle pop sounds of explosions when things Mm -hmm. are are blowing up. It's, it's that eeriness of quiet in the vacuum of space. And this movie treats it like that. And it, it makes it a lot more impactful to me, (laughs) you know, when I see, a space station break apart and I don't hear anything. I just see it being torn into shreds and I have to imagine that sound in my head. Um, but speaking of the sound, so for me personally, I cannot separate the Hans Zimmer score in this film from the emotions that the, the story actually evoke in me. I feel like it is every bit a player in that process. Is it similar feeling for you guys? Yeah, I, that's, that's a fantastic way of putting that because if you, for all of the fame that the inception bomb gets, uh, when I remember inception, I don't remember that, you know, that, that wasn't a meaningful part of, uh, the movie for me, it would be the, the actual song that they hear. But, uh, (laughs) all I really need to do is picture interstellar and I hear the out of control organ, uh, you know, at the at the most frantic point, and then the almost ear splitting like cacophony of them spinning to match the 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 station there uh, after there's been the explosion, which was silent. And yeah, it is. I do you guys? Sorry, this might be a tangent. I don't know if you are aware of how this movie began uh, as an idea, but um, Christopher Nolan and, and Hans Zimmer are friends and. Christopher Nolan invited Hans. He said, we should take our children to the beach. And they went, and while they were playing, he sat down and he said to him, uh, Hans, I don't know if he said that, but I'm going John McClane here. Uh, (laughs) I I have an idea, and I want to write it out 
and send it to you and you compose a bit of music that is evoked from you reading it. And it was, a, it was the only time that he'd ever asked him to do that. And he said, okay. And, uh, if, uh, you know, a few days later, a few weeks later, he got a, the, the single page in the envelope that was a, a scene or an idea or, or a short, short story. It was a single page and uh, about being a father and uh, about being a parent. And I think you can use your imagination to, to imagine what part of the movie it could potentially be. Mm-hmm. And Hans Zimmer composed a bit of music and recorded it and sent it to Christopher Nolan, and he replied back, okay, I need to make this movie now. Uh, and I think that is, it, that's such a fascinating uh, birth that the story, which was emotion first, was perfectly paired with the music that that emotion was expressed through, uh, you know, almost this cycle of creation at the beginning there. And so I think that it, it, knowing that, it's almost obvious that the music should be so hand in hand uh, with what's happening here with the, the sounds that are so distinctly of earth. Um, you know, not even the, uh, if you want to go into the, you know, the, the reason behind the organ, but even the fact that it is just uh, wood, it, you know, strings, like it has a feeling of not even an earth that we might have lived through, but that kind of collective unconscious you know of humanity like the the putting in of of the earphones and playing the sounds of the jungle we don't know if that character has been to the jungle and this is a kind reminder just like i'm sure most of the people in the movie theater had not been to a jungle uh you know to hear that sound but regardless of that i think that most if not all of the people in the theater would remember being as soothed you know as he is in that moment of uh Sounds of home on a planetary level, which is uh, which is one of those singular experiences that I that I took out of the theater with me. And that image of the spaceship flying past Saturn, uh, carrying the sounds of Earth with it, um, like that's stirring to me even now. Just discussing that, uh, and then the music is just paired with that perfectly. Yeah, I agree. I Hans Zimmer has become he's he's always been a favorite of mine, even back from like the the late nineties. And the thing that I enjoy most about him, I love that you mentioned the scene of them trying to reattach to the, um, um, gosh, what's the name of the space station thing? Uh, the, the endeavor, not the endeavor, but I forget. Anyway, they, they have to, you know, they have to match the spin with it. And I remember specifically saying, uh, or texting Aaron, I said, dude, this is the most intense scene I think I've seen <laughs> in a while. And I'm thinking, why is that? Well, one, because it's, there's a lot of stuff going on that's very, very bad. But the music enhances that. And I was just kind of thumbing through some of his other, you know, other movies that that he is, you know, that that, that he composed. Rain Man, Twister. Um, wow, I didn't know he did Rain Man. That's interesting. Yeah, uh, Radio Flyer, League of Their Own, uh, Days of Thunder. So, <laughs> oh, there we so go. He's got, I mean, so he's no. Let, let me finish. He's got, he's got a gamut of 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 movies, and what I think he does is because I, I specifically remember certain themes from each one of those movies, um, and not because it was catchy or anything, but because it was it was reintroduced throughout the movie um, in in unique ways. The Man of Steel theme that you know oh and the drums yeah Yeah. um 
Pirates of the Caribbean, I think, you know, dun, 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 you know, I, I think what Zimmer does is he adapts his music to the feel of the movie. And I think that's, I mean, that sounds like a very generic statement, like, isn't that what composers are supposed to do? But I think he, I think he's one of the guys that does it the best because he's not distracting with it. Like it's, it enhances the emotion that you're sensing in the moments with these characters and the attitude behind the music like um days of thunder is a great example it's a very it's a rock and roll guitar driven um but it's still (laughs) han zimmer stuff i mean yeah it's i mean it's very much a dated soundtrack it's not one that i would say yes i'm very moved by this i love it though i think it fits it that's that's what i'm saying it fits and i think a good composer adapts his style to the movie so that it fits. And I think that's what makes him such a versatile composer. I mean, he did the Da Vinci Code, the Simpsons movie, um, you know, the Pirates stuff, uh, you know, Frost Nixon, just Angels and Demons, Sherlock Holmes. I mean, it's, he's all over the place. And they all have a distinct sound to them. Um, even within his filmography of Nolan's, he has a distinct sound for each of those films. You don't hear the same stuff in each one. It might be kind of overbearing in some cases and very bassy, but I don't know that I heard an organ in Inception, you know, like I do in Interstellar. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I just think that's, that, that's what makes, for me, that's what makes him such a powerful composer is his ability to adapt and his ability to create beautiful music. Yeah, for me, I, I you know, when we were listening to, we were making a, Feel and Film Spotify playlist. We started this recently. So anyone listening, if you guys want to seek that out, type it in, Feel and Film's movie soundtrack or movie score or something, favorite movie scores. Uh, you're welcome to jump in, contribute, and uh, listen to that one anytime you want. But we've just been trying to populate it with some of the, our favorite tracks from movie scores. And so I've been listening to it a lot lately. And I got to tell you, while many tracks are beloved and I I recognize instantly and I love listening to them. There are definitely a handful that what I would use the words evoke emotion, a real raw sense of, I can't control what I'm feeling right now. I'm in the middle of working and I hear this specific piece of music and it just transports me to a new place. And I, I don't, I can't, I can't, I can't change that. And there are, several tracks in, in interstellar that do that for me. I mean, there's, and there's only a handful of films that I can think of. There's, you know, Lord of the Rings. There's a couple in Lord of the Rings that do it. Well, pretty much everything in Lord of the Rings that does that. Um, Jurassic park does that for me. Uh, you know, the opening credit or the opening coming upon Island Nublar, but there aren't a ton. There are many more that I can remember fondly and I can go, Oh, that's awesome. That, that connects me to that film, but they don't, necessarily change my emotion this movie changes my emotion and so that's what's so powerful about it to me is um especially when we're talking about how this big idea of love being a a dimension of of that we can you know transcend and move through i think having a film that puts such a focus on its score uh, was a really strong move by him and it's great that I love the story, Andrew. I'm so glad you told that. That you know, it speaks again to that collaboration. People want to work with him. I mean, the fact that Kip Dorn wanted to work with him. I watched a documentary, The Science of Interstellar, 
Patrick, you have the book version yes, of this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, uh, and it had a lot of Kip Thorne in this and, you know, they were telling a story about how Nolan went to him and said, here's what I want the wormhole to be like. And Kip said, uh, yeah, no, I'm not comfortable with that. That's not realistic enough. And so Kip Thorne literally does the math. Like he sits down and (laughs) builds with math, an actual wormhole people. That's amazing. That is incredible. No one puts that much effort into their filmmaking. No one, no one does that except Christopher Nolan. And so whether you love all of the decisions that are made in the end or not, you've got to on some level massively respect his dedication to the art style of filmmaking. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I want to talk also about, um, specifically about what, what takes place. Uh, so we we're in space, uh, we're, we're off on our adventure. We go to the water planet, bad things happen, horrible, horrible moments of coming back up and, and realizing that your, your poor buddy has been up here for like 40 years by himself. That's pretty shocking by the way. I don't know if that hits you guys, but man, that it was would, like 27. Well, that's right. close to 40. That's how I feel. I'm 37. I feel like I'm 60. <laughs> 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 uh, but I mean that, that moment of them seeing him again and just, it, when yeah. she asks him, you know, why didn't you go to sleep? And he does, he says, there were, there were times, you know, there were times when I went, went for, you know, some long naps <laughs> and, and I started to give up. I just, I, I, man, I started to cry then because I, I imagine what would it be like to be that guy in space? 27 years, you know, they're just down there. They're just down there, you know, just, they're just, just right there. And, and you can't, do anything about it um gosh it's so powerful but as we go forth um the big shock of this story until the ending there's a there's another one and that is that we get to the planet with dr man who of course is supposed to be the one who is the best of us aptly named dr man (laughs) and um which i think is awesome and uh he pops out of his his hibernation pod or whatever it is and it's Matt Damon. Did how did you guys react? Did you know? I guess that's my first question. Did you know going into this? Because I saw it on day one, opening night, and I didn't know. But did you know, or were you shocked? You can take this, with Andrew. Uh, I didn't know, and I. I it, it is the one. Uh, it is like maybe the most uh, immersion breaking moment that I've had. In, in a movie theater uh but it is it, i i i you know in hindsight especially uh it is not held against the film uh you know once you've seen it more than once because it's just everything that you brought into the theater or the viewing experience with you um i don't know if I, because i respect the the decision to keep that a surprise to keep it a reveal that the first time that this idea is given a face it is a face that they are next to and is, you know, no better than them physically. Uh, but I did not know. And I still uh, I remember that moment less vividly, <laughs> but I definitely do remember in the theater. I, I think everybody in the theater turned to the person they were with or just someone in the theater that was not with them and said, that's Matt Damon, <laughs> uh, which is probably not the moment that Christopher Nolan did want 
Uh, but I, but I think once you've seen it more than once, maybe you're seeing that moment the way that he intended. Fortunately, the the scene takes a twist uh, into him just breaking down and weeping, which which pulled me back into the story. But I was definitely out of it for that heartbeat. <laughs> Patrick, what yeah. about you? Well, I I knew again. I didn't see this in the theater, so I knew about it. Mm. But uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna slightly disagree with you, Andrew, in that I feel like Nolan. Because none of the marketing, I mean, he specifically left him off of the yep. press, you know, pressers, the poster, you know, everything. So this was not, so there was a reason. He was like, why are we not showing this dude? And I am inclined to believe, to go back to the idea that as people, as an audience, we're meant to resonate and connect with these guys on a grounded level, a human level. If you look at the movies that he was in prior to this, he's a protagonist. I mean, um, Promised yeah. Land. We bought a zoo, Elysium, the the Bourne movies. Um, you know, it, it's we we see him as a protagonist, and so when that reveal happens, what we have is Matt Damon, the nice guy, in our head, even though we know he's in, he's playing a character. So it makes the t- the turn of him and what he ends up showing us. Yeah. that much more of a shock. And so I think what Nolan's doing is intentionally playing with our uh, preconceived notions about an actor playing characters that are typically uh, viewed in a positive light, and he turns on that. And it's and that's even foreshadowed a little bit by, you know, that continuous, like, he's the best of us, you know, and, you know, he convinced... I love, I love how Brand um, talks about him. He convinced 11 other people to yeah. go on this. And when she said it that way, I go, that sounds really bad. It doesn't sound like he inspired us to go on these missions. No, he convinced us. In other words, he was like the Pied Piper and we were the rats and we, or the lemmings. And, you know, he led us off the hill. That's what I was thinking after knowing what I was going to uh, going to see. And so I think in some ways, um, Nolan was very strategic in, I think if it was somebody else, if it was another actor, I don't know that he would... He would have done that from a marketing standpoint. I agree. I agree. Um, absolutely. I, I, I'm kind of in the middle too. I, I agree with both. I, my theater. No, you got to agree with one or the other. That's <laughs> <cool>. <laughs> oh yes. It's always black or white these days. Um, it, you know, when I, when my theater first saw it, I, along with everyone else had that same out loud <gasps> moment when we saw Matt Damon and it was like, What? And then a secondary kind of, oh, moment when you realize he's the bad guy or he's lying or, you know, he's ultimately not going to be in the story very long. Um, and so I thought it was upon rewatch again, it, it sort of impacted me negatively the first time, I think. And in subsequent viewings, it has been just fine, if not a benefit, because I love his acting. And now I'm able to know he's coming. I'm not surprised by it. And I can appreciate his portrayal of that character and what that character is doing and saying and his reasoning. And so I appreciate it now. Um, and, and I think maybe Nolan probably knew that and knew that, you know, people were going to probably see this more than once. And so that that might happen. I, I mean, this is a guy that I, I expect anticipates crowd reaction very well. Yeah. He makes movies with twists. That's what he does. So he has to, he has to have an expectation in mind, um, and I you know, I'm sure he he would he knew that people would 
freak out at first. Um, but speaking of Dr. Man, so along those lines, since we're talking about him, how do we feel about what Dr. Man is selling and Dr. Man's actions? Um, were you able to resonate with him at all? Oh, oh, God. Oh, I was ready to offer a response until you threw that at me. Um, <laughs> you know what? I guess it's like it's loneliness is what we're talking about. Uh, I, I guess it is such a because this whole part of the the movie where it where it descends into a fight is kind of uh, pointed to by a lot of people as one area that that can be, uh, if not criticized, then just discussed a little bit more uh, technically because it is. It's certainly at odds with with the rest of the movie for me personally. That, um, but that might be part of the reason, right? Uh, when when they were fighting each other, uh, I ha- I had the words ringing in my mind. You know, there is no evil out here. It's just what we bring with us. That two human beings encountering each other as far away from Earth as humans have ever been, and the first thing they do is fight. Um, that is, on one level, so just the epitome of despair and also insanely human um you kind of can't take all of the good and just leave behind the bad of of making a story about what it means to be human so i i respect that and i don't think i i would i would feel comfortable and maybe this is a outlandish thing to say but i don't think at any point in his attempted marooning of them or, uh, you know, going to those extremes, I don't think at any point I ever felt like I didn't understand why he was doing it, mm-hmm. which which is kind of a, a credit to it, because, uh, you know, the best person, the person who claims to carry the least emotion mm-hmm. um, or be so have so little regard for just breathing um, would in, would end up being the person who was even if he didn't lie, I mean, maybe he would be disgusted with what he's doing uh, and not want to believe that he was capable of it, but he sure was. And, um, I, yeah, I mean, it, it's, it, it kind of speaks to this whole idea of, like you said, that, you know, convinced 11 people. And I think Coop at one point says to Brand, people with no attachments, hmm. you know, um, nothing they're leaving behind, uh, but, the flip side of that is that they're not, there's nobody that they're doing this for. Uh, and then that is a, we're kind of fed that like almost a tow rope through this movie, you know, of, okay, this is about humanity on a planetary scale that these people that went are out to rescue humanity as a species. Um, and then eventually it ends up being that isn't what is going to do. It is going to be the people who are doing this for the people they care about. So if he has to be the person to kind of get bloodied, smashing through that glass, you know, uh, of the realization, then I think he's a good person to do it because he can carry that really well. But, uh, yeah, when he turned evil and we found out what he was doing, I didn't have a moment of like, oh, come on. It was more of an, oh, you know, he wasn't up to this. Is, is probably what the feeling was. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I definitely sensed his humanity in that scene, uh, specifically where he's walking away after he's cracked Cooper's helmet, and he says, I'm here. Just listen to my voice. And well, and then when he says, I'm sorry, I can't. I can't watch you die. <laughs> he I, says, I want I can't to watch be it. bigger than this, but I can't. Yeah, and so you, you get this real sense of, like, 
I think what was talked about earlier in the movie, um, that no matter how selfless we feel like we are, how selfless these guys feel like they are, we really can't get beyond the the true nature of why we're doing what we're doing, either for ourselves or for our immediate family or for our loved ones. Uh, and that when it comes to survival, I, I, I think we know that Coop is just, he's he's struggling with this dichotomy of, I'm doing this for my kids, but I'm also doing this for humanity. But we know that his drive is for his kids, you know? And I, so I think, I remember just thinking about that visual of, of him walking away and it just, it was very Joker-esque because it was like, mm. it's this idea that I think what Nolan does is he creates these conflicting ideas in our heads, these conflicting um, visuals, these conflicting, um, I don't know, just thoughts, and we're forced to deal with it as an audience. And it's great as an audience because you're like, oh, I'm struggling, you know, what is, you know, because I'm definitely Dr. Man, I'm, I can be him, you know, I, I would probably do that. But I'm like, but he's an evil guy, you know, he's going to kill Coop. And so it, it's just... I think the last four weeks that we've been doing these, uh, Aaron's been, you know, pitching me these fastball questions of like, well, what would you do in this situation? And I'm like, stop asking me. I don't want to, <laughs> I, I don't want to take the test anymore, you know. But I think that's the magic of what, of what Nolan does, and it goes back to him being so meticulous and so just gentle with how he he lays out his stories, is that he really wants us to ask those questions as we're watching the film and even afterwards. Because I think he feels like they're important questions to ask because we all relate to that. We can all say, you know what? I'm Dr. Man. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> I mean, as bad as it is to, to say that, we are. I mean, the way in which he describes the isolation and the inability to be able to deal with that, how many of us would be able to say any different? And yeah. is it really that much of a stretch to see what he did um, the links he took to to make sure that that he got back home, and as much as I don't like it, it's very much unethical and just you know quote wrong. But it's not something that I wouldn't second guess, or that I would not you know I'd have to I'd have to second guess for sure. Yeah, I mean it's a, it's a Nolan theme, right? Not to encroach on your uh, the Dark Knight Rises review, but uh, you know make the jump without the rope. And fear will find you, right? You know, the people who have nothing to lose are sometimes not the people who should be followed. Because mm, that's good. Uh, in the case of Coop, like he had a lot to lose, and that was what—that's what drove him, and that is what was paid lip service to by Doctor Man. But I don't think he actually understood the reality of what he was saying to Coop about a, a father thinking of their children. Right on. That's true. I don't think he could either, and. I also really resonated with him and that's why I asked the questions because I, in past viewings, I've, I've simply looked at him as a villain and now watching this in sequence going through Nolan's filmography. One of the things that I've noticed and attached myself to is that rarely are Nolan's villains any bit like other villains that you will see in, in storytelling because they are, they are so deeply created and they are so yeah. given traits that make them human and make make us relate to them on purpose so that we 
question things and we we wonder what we would do in certain situations and and that's how I felt about man this time around and and specifically when he's talking about how you know he and professor brand had discussed this and and professor band told him you know he knew that people wouldn't be able to work together to save the species instead of themselves and that's why they lied because if you told them hey you know, you're doing this to save everybody except for yourself. You're still going to die. People would never have come together around that idea. And I think they're absolutely correct. They're absolutely correct. And so it's a, it's a situation where you almost have to believe that the lie in that, that case is correct. And so, you know, when taking all of that into account and then the deep loneliness and fear of death, I know Dr. Mann says he tells them that when he went to sleep the last time, he didn't know if he was going to wake up. He, he's, I think he said he didn't set the timer, right? Yeah. Like, how, can you, I, I try to put myself there and imagine to myself, like what, how would that feel to just know that I'm falling asleep right now, I'm getting into my bed and I have no earthly idea when I'm going to wake up if, or if I'm going to wake up. That is, that's, that's hard. That's, that's really, really heavy. And I imagine that, uh, I would fight like hell to survive, uh, if it came to it after that. So, you know, that leads us into the awesome sequence of them going into to space that you're talking about earlier with the, the lander um, or, yeah, the lander trying to dock with the endurance and the ring right. and uh, the great, you know, absence of sound. One thing that I found really cool in this, this particular thing was that Coop's uh, past as a pilot really comes into play here because he wasn't an astronaut. He was a, what was he, a NASA test pilot, correct? Like he flew jets and stuff. And we get this situation where his piloting skills become necessary. So it's not like a a throwaway career that he's had. And it it comes back to be useful without being some kind of like in your face, like, oh, hey, now we're going to, we've got to go, we got to come back to this because we told you, you know, this is a character trait. So we've got to, we've got to do it. It just felt very natural to me. Um, that, Hey, this is perfect because you need him to be able to do this. And he, he wouldn't be able to do this unless he had this experience as a test pilot in these difficult situations. And of course the visuals of that uh, cinematically and technically, mm. it's just incredible. <laughs> I mean, the idea of matching the spin and watching that happen. I, I just kind of watched this whole movie at that point with my jaw dropped. I think every single time it's, it's pretty amazing. Um, before we approach the ending, I wanted to ask one other kind of topic thing, and that is your thoughts on the technology, um, the designs and particularly the robots. So anything around those, those things, cause those are all, these are things that all science fiction movies or space movies are going to have. And so we have to kind of compare them to each other in, in some form or format. So, so what do you think about how interstellar handles spaceship design and robots and such and so forth? Well, I think when we get into space, I think that's where no one says all bets are off. And I think that's where he says, let's get really creative. So now that we've sold this, this grounded idea and when we get into space, let's, you know, let's play off of, some of that within our designs and particularly with, with case and tars. I think the fact that they had human voices that they weren't yeah. digitized, the fact that they were 
They had conversational tone. The fact that they were very self-aware created this sense of just weird connectivity with them. So when so when Tars is told that he's going to be the one to basically get all the data by crossing the event horizon, at that point I'm going, no, don't make Tars die. You know, it's this box. It's this like monolith with legs. Uh, but at this point, you know, we've gotten so used to his little humor at, at what, 75% and his truth uh, at 90%. And then even with with Case, Case is almost like the little brother. Um, at one point, I remember, uh, you know, somebody said, um, "Case, you don't." Oh, yeah, uh, Coop said, "Case, you don't say much." He goes, "Tars does enough talking for both of us." So, <laughs> so there's just this, you know, those those robots in particular, they are extensions of the crew, and for the first time. I began to connect in a way, you know, in the same sense that I guess we connected with like C-3PO and R2-D2, but more on a <laughs> weird, to say this, human level. And I think it was because of the human voices and the the uh, the way in which they spoke that was very much um, similar to, to to speaking with, with a human with that sense of uh, that robot uh, limitations, like having to set their their humor level or their honesty level or whatever to certain percentages and i thought those were great those were my favorite probably as far as like special effects or technical standpoints the robots are my favorite so yeah. patrick compared to other famous robots <laughs> I, I gotta ask you this I, i'm gonna make you answer a hard question where do they fall though like compare them to hal or to um uh, is it Gertie? I think in Moon is the name of uh, Kevin Spacey's mm, yeah. robot. Um, yeah, uh, Jinx. I just rewatched Space Camp recently. Jinx uh, sends some some kids into space. Like some of these other very famous robots that we get. You know, I think because I love movies about hope, I think these guys probably jumped to the top nice. because I felt like they were very hopeful. They didn't. They 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 didn't feel. I mean, they were compliant. Because they had to be, but they, they, it's, it's like they were okay with being who they were. They were okay in their own metal skin. They were okay with saying, look, I've got to do this. And this is, this is who I am. I mean, um, again, going back to that, that idea that Coop says, look, I'm made for this. I mean, these guys were made for, for what they were. I think, you know, there's some, there's some nostalgia with guys like Jinx that, that I'll, you know, he'll always be a you know, a great robot to me. And, um, Hal has his own kind of like, don't mess with this guy, you know, don't mess with this robot. But, and, and he's a complicated character or AI. Yeah, I guess. Or AI. Yeah. But, but I think in the case of Tars and case, I think they fit, they, they fit seamlessly a lot. Like Hans and score does. They fit very seamlessly into this crew of, of individuals and they have their own specific ways in, and reasons why we root for them and why we want them to survive and why we want them to continue to do what they do because they have value. Great. Andrew. Yeah. I mean that I feel like this is a, a victory uh, for Christopher Nolan and everybody even wrotely associated with this, that these characters are, it almost makes every movie that has a robot that looks like a human seem like they're cheating <laughs> uh, because that that first line of uh well, I guess it would be Tars saying, you know, why are you whispering? 
Uh, <laughs> so got funny. one of the biggest laughs in, in a theater, <laughs> uh, you know, in that summer. Um, I can't hear you. <laughs> yeah, and that, I mean, it was just uh, personality conveyed completely through voice. Um, Mm-hmm. That is so. I mean, that's just. I would. I would watch an hour long documentary. Um, you know what? In fact, uh, the the guy who played Tars, uh, Bill Irwin, who voiced him and moved him around on set, uh, actually operating that gigantic hydraulic thing, uh, is uh, as like a standout character in this story. I think it's no coincidence that it ends up being him and Coop, you know, who who lived through this. Uh, and then, fun fact for the the Nolanites in the in the crowd, um, Tars or Case is uh, voiced by Josh Stewart, who's actually the guy who, the soldier of Bane, who first approaches the general on the bridge after Gotham has been shut down, oh, uh, saying that you're going to keep the 15 million people from crossing the bridge. Uh, there you go. That's Case. Um, That's awesome. But, but no, I mean it's uh, uh, that that first scene of him giving him like the bad cop uh is is one of the most incredible like surreal moments i've had in a movie theater wondering you know is this like a a weird futurama robot um (laughs) and then yeah by the end of it they are uh i think it's it's case who who takes over piloting um when when they're going to be knocked unconscious and i feel like that's a a fantastic moment of uh you know they are a part of the team and that is Mm -hmm. just it succeeds on how little is there. It's so potent. Um, I think that anyone, any movie that tries to create a compelling robotic character that doesn't look to this movie for it is just by default missing out on something that is really, really special uh, in a particular way. I mean, I'm a fan of the Star Wars brand, but um, this is just this is is a human character in a way that uh i would never even think a robot could be i mean they're they're the like the standout favorite characters for a lot of people and that is considering who's who else is in this movie um my hats are off to them yeah i have have a similar reaction and uh, i absolutely love and adore the robots in this one and and just i I think they agreed i mean they're they're like favorite characters um they're not just you know, window dressing <laughs> and they're not there just to be there because the story needs to have robots because it's a space story. They have agency and they, they make choices. Yeah. Um, they help make choices. And right. yeah, I mean, and, and I, I get teary eyed when, uh, it, when case uh. is gone, when case is sacrificing himself essentially. And when Amelia cares <laughs> that case is sacrificing himself, like mm-hmm. she's like, wait, no, you know, that means he's going to be gone. And he's like, that's what I have to do. It's what I, what I'm here for. A soldier's death. Yeah. Yeah, it is. And, um, and then of course the fact that, you know, Tars carries through the story and, and just (laughs) also though the design, I, so I'm, I watch a lot of science fiction because I love it. And it is hard these days to break through and to give us something really wholly unique and I thought that they did a fantastic job of this with the ring that the endurance docks with, mm-hmm. um, with the Lego like system that the lander and the ranger use. They, they can connect to all these different ports on the ring 
so that they can do different things. It's it's yeah. it's really fascinating. And the thing is, Nolan doesn't beat your head over or beat you over the head with this knowledge. Like, hey, hey, look, everybody, this is really cool system. It it just it happens a couple times, and if you're paying attention, you notice it. Um, and I, so I love that design. Uh, and then the design of you know the robots of of Tars and Case. They're just yeah. they don't look <laughs> like they should be able to be helpful or to move. But man, when you see him pick up um, Amelia on, or not Amelia, but uh, whoever it is that dies first. Oh yeah, <laughs> I can't remember his name. Uh, the Boyle? first Boyle, yeah, uh, Boyle or Doyle, one of those two. When when he yeah. uh, when he passes or gets caught in the the water planet, when 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 he's rushing across the water. Oh my gosh. Uh, it's it's a f- amazing scene just watching those legs, the way that they move. I mean, I, I, I just don't know how people can conceptualize these things. It's kind of like BB-8, right? Like when we saw BB-8, we were like, how does someone imagine that that can be a thing? Um, but it is, and it works. And so it definitely enhanced it for me, just the design in general. And then the design and idea of this centrifuge on Earth that in theory would lift up as right, a right. space station, um, one of the coolest scenes of the whole movie is there at the end when he, when Coop wakes up and looks out the window and the baseball hits the window and you, you see yeah. this gravity shifted playing field out there. It's, it's, it's mind blowing. So yeah. I, I thought the design was phenomenal across the board. Mm-hmm. But uh, so speaking of Tars and, and uh, Coop and Tars doing his duty and saving him in the end and going with him, uh, my what two two we can get into the ending now and what you, what do you think about the ending is one question um i want you to also tell me because i'm curious what your thoughts are on the debate that has happened since this movie came out of is coop dead or alive do you do you have a position based on this because nolan has repeatedly done this and given us an ending that he as he's said he wants us to experience for ourselves and come to our own conclusion that there is no right answer to that question. Um, and so, I mean, he, he tells us that he has, he, he knows what the ending is for him, but that doesn't really matter. It's a matter of what does the ending mean to you? So give us your thoughts on the ending of this film, which has been controversial and uh, also awesome for some. Well, I think um, in the same way that, uh, Okay, I'm going to preface this by saying I'm going to spoil Inception because I got told by a listener that in one of our episodes I referred back to Insomnia and spoiled something because they hadn't listened to Insomnia yet. So I'm just going to say I'm about to say something about Inception. Um, when we find out that, that Leo's character, you know, we wonder if he's still in the dream world or, or whatever or if he's in reality. The question that's get, that gets brought up is the same one that I think we're asking here. Uh it's this idea of what is reality for Coop. Reality is getting to see his children, or in this case, just Murph. Um, for me, I would like to believe that he is alive because I think if he were dead, I think if he had, if if this were just all kind of his ending, he would have gone back to. He would have been able to see her as a child again. He would have been able to see her um, as he left her. I think having that kind of power if he were if this were kind of his own kind of made up like death type thing. Um, and so at the same time, you know, he's still looking for purpose even even after this. You know, he's 
quote save the world and now he's you know on on you know the the space station orbiting saturn and he goes off and and to reunite with brand and i think that i'm inclined to believe that this was not that that he was not dead this was like the next step and the fact that he was he was put you know he he was put there for a purpose and him being the ghost um put him in a position where he was able to you know fulfill what it was that his purpose was but that that was only one half of his purpose um but i think the 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 one thing that stood out to me was the fact that he saw his his daughter as an old woman that kind of hinted to me that he was in a you know still alive at that point okay yeah the, the i've if i worded this softly i would say i vehemently disagree with the idea that he's dead <laughs> um, uh mainly because i i i i view these kind of theories just like with skepticism in cases where i wouldn't see it really adding anything to the story uh i think inception it is a fitting end that you know to get that ah you know from the audience when it cuts to black and they don't get to see because the whole point is you know you don't know you know how would you know um and it leaves people feeling like that i I think that there's not much in the movie that would reinforce or even suggest that this isn't the way that it seems i mean it's, it's treated visually the same way as everything else in the movie and there's so much that you know how how did the coordinates for nasa get there you know i'm uh it's it's kind of like all of this stuff i think the biggest thing for me is this is a story where love is the answer (laughs) you know (laughs) um so it would feel very weird for me if if the movie ended by showing you love mattering in the way that the characters have argued it might um when the character who's embodying it is one of the people who did not feel that way and were suddenly transformed by this realization um i don't know i feel like there are lots of movies where i think it is really fun to to debate you know like total recall is one of those famous ones of you know, fun to debate if the director or the story has given you hints to kind of ask these questions. And I feel like this could be one of those cases. Uh, but for me, I don't really see those questions being raised. And I think that uh, this, the idea that this is, you know, concocted as some kind of fantasy um, would feel kind of at odds with the rest of the story for, for me personally. I completely agree. I am I am wholeheartedly in agreement with both of you on that, and I I'm glad you used the word vehemently because I hated it too. <laughs> in fact, I had never had this debate myself. Um, I was doing some more some research previous to this episode and and found quite a few arguments and, and conversations online about this topic, and I was a little surprised because never once in watching this movie have I ever thought to myself, oh, you know, maybe he just died and he's imagining the rest of this. It's it's way too complicated or way too thorough of an ending and uh, we go to too many steps after his time of what would have been his death uh for it to be right. what i think would be all in his head so what how do you feel then about love as this dimension 
the the idea that love has enabled us as a humanity some way in the future to transcend time and to use as a tool to connect to our past loved one and our loved ones uh, across time in order to ultimately save ourselves. Um, it's a very, very normal sci-fi concept. This is mm. something that was covered in Arrival as well um, last year, which we loved, and we, we like that idea as well, the idea of trying to talk through time to save yourself <laughs> from something that's going to eventually undo you. So how did you guys handle this ending? Uh, I Okay, well, this is where, for me, uh, I think that the reality is that this whole section – of the movie really threw a lot of people. Uh, I think it probably really startled or turned off um, maybe a more casual audience with, with, with uh... well, it's hard to say science fiction because this is not a science fiction esque uh, turn that the story takes to me. This is like very abstract um, anchored in sentiment. And that's what I was saying earlier. This is the part where, I think it threw me off a little bit uh, because I was assuming that this was going to be a science fiction story, which was um, a a piece of speculative fiction that was intended to make me think about something intellectually and to have me come to some kind of intellectual crossroads or a realization – like I think Inception kind of tickles with that a little bit more, but also with the morality in it, um, as you guys were talking about, you know, is it right to do it? But it is very much at the idea of how do ideas get formed um, in the actual crux of that. There's there's little emotion in that in that notion. Wow, there's a sentence for you. Put that on a T-shirt. Um, <laughs> but in this case, I was assuming that it was the same thing and then – reached this and was thrown because that is so not what this sequence is about. It, it is, it requires a suspension of disbelief and, uh, I think wiggly rules or kind of metaphysical love, you know, uh, to, to even work. Um, so I think it threw a lot of people out, but after I saw it, uh, and realized this the way I took this story may not have actually been the way Christopher Nolan was intending me to take it, which was, you know, when when Coop says to her, um, "I'm coming back," and she says, "You know, when," and he says, "I'm coming back." Like, I think we are meant to, on a human level, put power into his claim because it is based in love. Mm-hmm. That, you know, a, a person would fight through space and do the impossible because they promised their kid that they would come back to them. Like that is, that is a purely emotional, that is not a reason based or logic based idea. And we get to the end of the movie where I don't think you are supposed to walk away with necessarily an intellectual question, but a, an emotional one, you know, that, um, do I believe that, boy, we really should have just trusted Brand that the one person out of all these people who had someone who wanted to see them again would be the person who found a way to survive? Um, you know, or, or, or we should have trusted Brand or in this moment we should believe that people in the future 
would come up with the tools and the intellect and the logic and the science to solve it, but they would face a question that only someone who loved uh, their daughter would be able to give them because that is only something that he could have had. And, you know, that that because of that, we figured out a way to save this. Like, I feel like the whole thing functions as an emotional engine. Uh, So when you get to the end there, if if you went into the story thinking that this is going to teach you something about love and not science, I feel like that end sequence would just be more enjoyable. Like, you know, more more than uh, whether it holds together or, or holds water or anything like that. I think that it that the power of that narratively kind of relies on you feeling that love and how much he loves his daughter is actually what has brought him here and what's going to save him. I agree. I, I love that when you mention that, because there is a, you know, that that thing about promising to come back to Murph comes full circle. Mm-hmm. It's one of my favorite quotes in the entire film exactly, is yeah. there at the end when she says, I knew you'd come back. And he says, how? And she says, because my dad promised me <laughs> and mm-hmm. I'm not going to lie. I mean, I, I get choked up just reading it oh, because yeah. I have a daughter and the, you know, the idea of ever promising my child something and not delivering is, I mean, it's, it's unfathomable, uh, unfathomable to me. And, and I know it will happen, right? I mean, we're human. It's, it's going to take place. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but not in movies, but not, thankfully, right? thankfully not yeah. in, uh, in Christopher Nolan's world, but the way that I know that I would fight to make sure that happened at all costs, um, allows me to connect to the ending of this story and believe in it. And I also love that you bring up Amelia and, and the fact that in the end we see, you know, that we have this big conversation and she says, you know, is it really wrong to, you know, believe or I don't remember exactly what the quote is, but she, she says something to the effect of, um, could it be so wrong to give love a chance? You know, and, and Coop's answer is like, yeah, it might <laughs> like mm, yeah. It, it might, it might actually kill us all. Um, but you, as you say, you know, ultimately that was the right call, but I wonder sometimes how that would have affected the ending of Coop's story. You know, had they gone to that planet and yeah. plopped themselves down does Murph ever get them off of the earth? Does, does he ever even connect to Murph again? You know, are they able to talk back and forth? Who knows how that plays out? So, Mm. um, yeah, I, I love it as well. Patrick, what about you? Well, when I finished this movie with my wife, she looked at me and she had, well, that was weird. (laughs) And I I didn't disagree with her. I didn't disagree with her because, um, you worded it really well, Andrew. It's, it's a very abstract idea and it takes a serious, like 90 degree turn story-wise because yeah up to that point we've been very believable and saying okay wormholes cool black holes cool all right and what nolan does really well is he gives great exposition within dialogue he does that really well in inception uh, that that particular piece of of um exposition in inception was my favorite uh was my connecting point but when we get to this place of this um Gosh, I wish I, Aaron, I wish I could remember how you described this room, this like love bookshelf love room thing. <laughs> I forget how it was, but it, it cracked me up. It's so completely bizarre. Yeah. And, and I know what he's doing. Like I, and he, and the dialogue that, that, that Coop has with, with Tars is sort of Nolan's way of explaining what's going on, but it's so much information. It's so much explanation that, that's the part of the movie that I have to rewind. And say, okay, let's do this again. Okay, let's do this again. 
okay, let's do this again. And it, it as at some point, the discovery of it becomes very, very challenging. And you almost want to go, okay, I'm just going to go to Huffington Post and read about this, you know, or something where <laughs> I need someone to explain it to me because yeah. I get distracted by that. And I'm, I'm, it's like I'm on the cusp of understanding what he's saying, and I'm just overjoyed with that idea, sure. with with that one concept that I think he's trying to get at. Um, it doesn't ruin the movie for me by any means. It just makes that part harder to digest um, because I, you know, I think as moviegoers, I think we all feel like we're pretty smart. We feel like, hey, when we get something that's going to make us think, when we get it, we feel a little bit more. Uh, feel like we have a little bit more credibility as as watchers and then we you know you run across something like this and you're like whoa okay <laughs> let's just take a step back and yeah. and for me i think that it can become problematic if if i don't have coffee with somebody afterwards and say can you explain that to me because <laughs> i need a little bit of i need a little bit more than what i got but the little bit that i understand and the idea of love kind of transcending time um is such a it, it's such a it's not a conflicting thought but it's what you mentioned it's a it's an emotional mixed with a scientific concept and those things don't necessarily jive i mean when you think of science you think just like what coop said to to murph you know that you know and his you know in his his you know dad voice okay you know draw your conclusions do your how and your why and then, then you know present your case you know and he's he's doing these you know he's telling her you know, this is how you do it. And of course, the irony of it is that he can't do that when he's in this like magic, you know, this five dimensional bookcase. Um, and so I know you're laughing at my, my bad impression. I'm sorry. I just, it's the only way I can explain it. It's okay. I think that's the all normal right, reaction. Right, right. Yeah. Um, well, no, I think you're, I think you're given a pass on that because I think this is a case where I, I walked out of that theater thinking Christopher Nolan used this kind of, mind-bending science as a means to tell the story of a father you know seeing the life of his children that he missed and coming to the bedside of that child uh, grown old you know like when, when it came to that final scene I didn't think what is Christopher Nolan want me to like wanting me to to understand about the science of this, I was sitting there thinking this was what we were getting to, right? Like everything, this was, you know, even if all of the science was just an excuse to get to this beginning and this ending, um, I think that that's the, what would pin Nolan into telling this story, not necessarily yeah. the the science of it, which may be a cop-out for a lot of people, and a lot of people might just not like that movie because they like science fiction, but um, yeah. Yeah, brilliant point. I I completely agree. I think that the the blending of pure science fiction with that emotional concept um, is is just hard for people to take and to process. But ultimately, it gives this film a longevity that is what makes it special. It's the reason that years later we can all talk about it and that we can talk about how it has progressively risen in our list of favorites because of our ability to connect with it more so than just logically, um, right. you know, and I can, I can list off a whole name, whole, you know, dozens of science fiction movies that I love that don't get me in the feels, 
in the same way. And those, the ones that are, that are up there in my all time list that I rewatch are the ones that, that do this and connect to me. Um, I will, I will talk about my thoughts briefly on this, uh, as we move into our connecting point. But before we get there, I just want to quickly ask any topics or anything you guys, any points you wanted to make or, or things you wanted to bring up that we haven't covered yet. Well, I'd just like to say that movies like this that have a high degree of rewatchability, uh, especially on the emotional spectrum, I think really speak to their value. And um, as I know we're going to move into our connecting points, but I think our connecting points are one of those things that sort of, elevate that they sort of amplify that concept i wonder if we were to you know based on what we talked about what we will be talking about about our our connecting points if we watch this again a year from now would our connecting points change and i submit that they will because of the fact that movies like this hit us in so many places and i think that's what enhances their value is the fact that they can depending on our life situation depending on what's going on we resonate with certain parts of of these films uh, in ways that are important to us in some way, shape, or form. And uh, there's kind of the movie magic that goes with that, um, especially for movies that have you know, important messages to say, like Chris, Chris, Chris Nolan's films. Um, I think that there's a lot of, of added value to that, to be able to say, hey, you know what, I'll rewatch this because I enjoy it, but I'm also going to rewatch it because... I need to I need to hear that story again. I need to hear that message again. And the surprise comes when we find something else that we pull out of it and say, "Wow, I didn't catch that or I didn't I didn't hear that the way that I heard it the last time I watched this movie." And I I think that's what I look forward to when I when I revisit movies like this. I completely agree. I think uh, I've had many different connect- connecting points uh, over the the times that I've watched this and uh they're potentially different every single time. Uh, and I think I, I also have just, it's been a joy to go through a filmography in this style as well. Um, as we you know are wrapping this up, we won't be talking about another Nolan movie until Dunkirk. And then we're, we're kind of done <laughs> until he makes new ones, which is a shame. Um, yes, we could go back and do a couple of Batman movies or something here and there, but uh, it has been a lot of fun, and I think we'll we'll hopefully try and continue this. Maybe every January, pick another director and and roll it on, uh, and go through somebody else's top five or four. Should be a good time. Uh, Andrew, did you have any final thoughts or anything before we go to connecting point? Uh, I'll just tip my hat to the set dressers with that dust. Um, I, I will never oh, see yeah. this movie and not notice the the table in the principal's office with only the hand marks at the edges of the table from, from sitting down. That's just an, an, Attention an amazing detail. touch. Yeah. The and principal who is David O'Yellow. Oh, yellow. Oh, by O-Yellow-O, the way. yeah. Didn't even notice killer. that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and then, and then the, the dust behind Matthew McConaughey's head on those window frames and then <laughs> not, uh, on the ship, uh, as we are not on earth anymore. I, I love that as a nice touch. Yeah. I was very thirsty throughout this entire movie. <laughs> yeah. <of that> dust. <laughs> All right. Well, um, as we normally do, we usually save the scene that we supposedly connect the most with uh, for the CP moment. And this was a particularly hard one uh, for some of us. Andrew, you mentioned that <laughs> you were like, you're really going to make me do this? And I was like, yeah, I am. Um, but I, too, had a problem trying to pick a connecting point. I actually tried to have Patrick pick mine for me at one point because I just couldn't decide. So this is a movie where I have multiple times 
just felt very tightly in tune with it. Um, but I'll start. The one that that I picked is is the ending. And so my thoughts on the ending are um, th- there's many moments of awe and wonder that could have worked for me. Um, the scenes when we realize the incredible vastness of space and the beauty of what could be out there uh, are big for me. You know, seeing Gargantuan for the first time, things like that. Uh, but the most impactful was Cooper inside the Tesseract, even though it is that controversial moment. For me, he's carried such a weight on him, knowing that his daughter um, believes that he left her to starve and die. He has this guilt. But when he, and then he gets to look at her. And I just, I imagine what that would be like, seeing her um, light years away from me and all that separates me from my child is, um, I'm going to try to get through this, uh, is a bookshelf. As silly as that may seem, it doesn't matter to me that it's a bookshelf. It's, it's like, I can't, I can reach out and I can touch her. I can see her. I can hear her, but I can't get to her. Um, and so ignoring that silliness for a second, uh, you, you get to be with him in that moment of sanity when he realizes that he can make her understand that it's been him this whole time, that he was her ghost. And that just blows me away. Um, whew, from a being able to connect to my child aspect. And so he can finally release that guilt. And I think that that was the point of the whole visualization of this power of love that Nolan was going for. And the idea of, of making us have that emotion, not that Nolan actually believes that love is uh, something that transcends space and time uh, in in a scientific way. So for me, um, it ultimately is what pulls it all together. And it ties in Patrick to what you just talked about with how your connecting points change, because I hated the ending at the beginning of this. When I first watched this, the first time I watched this movie, I I walked out of it and this was the problem I had with it. Just like all those people, Andrew, that you you've talked about, like I couldn't, I didn't understand it. And I was like, I was in that science world and I couldn't connect the dots. Um, and I had kids then too, but now I can put two and two together. I can separate them. I can enjoy the pieces for what they are. And, um, and it really works and it makes, it makes the science part and the science fiction and the exploration part mean so much more to me. Um, because it's, it's more than just for me. It's for my child. It's, it's, it's Coop doing it for Murph. Um, and for Tom, not just for himself, not just for humanity. So uh, for all those reasons, uh, my moment is the <laughs> bookshelf in the sky or in space uh, love connects all kind of moment. The bookshelf of love. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what about uh, what about you guys? Somebody want to jump in? Yeah, you can go ahead, Andrew, if you want to. Uh, yeah, well, you're going to – I think yours is, is going to be the, the one that just – uh, reduces me to just a weeping um, <laughs> ball of emotion and fatherly feelings. I didn't know non fathers were allowed to have uh, <laughs> the the opening credits. You like that one too? <laughs> <laughs> no, um, yeah, for me, I, I think the the moments that really um, the the moment that resonated with me the the first time was uh, John Lithgow's character uh, Donald. I guess recognizing that I am him. I guess in this in the version of the story is I would be 
uh, he is me in this story um, and saying that, you know, this world ain't that bad, comparing it to how crazy our own got. Um, but the one that stuck with me, uh, if you guys will indulge me here for a second, uh, I read The Great Gatsby in high school, and I think that's probably one of those books that everyone has to read. But um, the part that always stuck with me was the end of the book, partly because I thought it was infinitely more interesting and well-written than the, the rest of the book, but it ends with uh, Nick standing and looking at New England, and uh, he says that uh, a Dutch sailors <laughs> had once pandered in whispers to the last... Oh, yeah, the, the setting, okay. The, he paints the picture of like the discovery of the new world where, where sailors, for a transitory enchanted moment... Man must have held his breath in the presence of this continent. Compelled into an aesthetic contemplation he neither understood nor desired, face to face for the last time in history with something commensurate to his capacity for wonder. Uh, and that is, I, I rem that, that passage stuck with me. Um, just the idea of we cannot see something that leaves us as dumbfounded. Uh, and, and as, as, imponderable as uh you know those people did once and i remembered that and then it came up into my mind after seeing the movie because of them entering the wormhole uh which which visually is is one of the most breathtaking effects i think i've ever seen as they are growing uh closer to it and then when they first shove that joystick to to go into it I distinctly remember sitting in the chair in the IMAX and thinking, I have no idea what I'm about to see. Uh, and those characters have no idea what they're about to see. And <laughs> cut to one of still the most amazing visual effects I think I've ever seen uh, in a movie that it, at, at one time feels like it is obviously a fictionalized version of traveling through the fabric of space and time but at the same time feels like this kind of might be what this could be like to a human that doesn't understand it. And I was holding my breath through that entire sequence um, as they were, that we are just observers of something that is completely beyond uh, our you know, capacity for wonder. Um, and that was the first time I felt that in a movie theater. And walking out of there, I understood what that passage meant. And I understood that that is probably what Christopher Nolan was aspiring to, was to put the audience in the seat as much viewers as the characters were yeah. and to see something that they couldn't understand. Um, and that, that is one that has resonated with me as these are the explorers, you know, these are the new explorers of humanity and uh, there is excitement not to be feared uh, in in crossing that line, and that is beyond the movie and beyond the heart of the story. That thing is is just a sequence and a value that is seen that I'll never forget. Mm, that's, that's great. That's awesome. I you know I agree, and I think part of Nolan's intention as well may have been this film comes at a time when our space program is continually facing defunding, and our previous aspirations of exploring the moon and, and going to the Mars and settling colonies, things like this have started to fall by the wayside some. And um, I think kind of trying to, he's in a way he's trying to reignite that spark. And that's what those scenes do for 
you. Yeah. Um, well, they do them for all of us, but I love that you brought that up because it is so important. And it also, it reminded me of one of my favorite quotes in the movie, which is just when Coop is using the analogy about the yachtsman, the famous, <laughs> yeah. the, the world-class yachtsmen that don't know how to swim, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, like they, yeah. they trust. I think it was, um, uh, the other the other doctor uh, who's talking about how he's freaking out because the ship just has these panels between him yeah. and infinite space, you know, and, and Coop uses that analogy and that that just really hit me as as brilliant as far as, you know, that's mm. what exploration is. And somebody has to do that. Somebody has to to take those risks and and, and go do that. Um, and I love that it, this could have very well inspired uh, people to be astronauts years from now mm-hmm. we're going to hear hear our astronauts say yeah. you know I, I watched interstellar one day and i wanted to be an astronaut so i mean <laughs> even even the moment when a character says you know coop do you know who we are uh we're <laughs> nasa and that is a hands down no need to worry this is a group of thinkers who are pursuing good for the planet mm-hmm. and the people yes that is a, a very rare and that is oh you know all props to NASA that that is the reputation that they've earned uh, in film and in life. Totally. Yeah. Why did you have to taint it with Matt Damon being a bad guy? Don't do that. <laughs> Come on. He redeemed himself <laughs> next the next couple of years. The next time he goes to Mars, so he's good. With the Mars, he's gonna be. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> Stranded on a planet, and this time he's actually wanted to come. That's... Jessica Chastain has to rescue him then too. That's what he does. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So, so oh, what about man. you, Patrick? What's your uh, connecting point? Uh, well, as a sidebar, let me just say that The Great Gatsby is one of my, if not my favorite book. So I'm so glad that you brought that up. I'm putting it on my to reread list for this year yeah. now that you've, that you've mentioned that. So that's good stuff. Um, you know, Hugh Jackman is, you know, I have no problems admitting that he's my favorite, one of my favorite actors, if not my favorite. But Matthew McConaughey is, is quickly coming up there as one of my new favorites. And movies like this have really elevated him to a place of just uh, incredible depth as an actor. And um, the moment I mentioned earlier in the show about him when he was driving away, it just emotionally just ripped to shreds because he, he left his daughter on such a terrible place, you know. The moment that stood out to me was the essentially the next time that he gets to hear from her, and that's after he gets back from Miller's planet. He goes into the you know the message room or whatever, sits down, and he hears um, Casey Affleck. <laughs> There's another surprise actor I didn't know was in this um, at the time. You know, hearing him just talk about you know what's happened over the last 27 years. And then he gets to Murphy, who surprises him because she hasn't he hasn't heard from her since he left. And hearing her say things like, this is a very special day for me. Um, it's my birthday, but this is a very special birthday because you remember when you and she starts telling him the story and it it cuts to him and he is just weeping like he is just breaking down because he knows exactly what she's about to say. And he's processing all of these, you know, all this guilt and all of this uh, regret of like, what did I do? What did I do? And I could see, at least I felt like I could see this gamut of emotions 
in his just tear blistered face of him saying, you know, probably thinking to himself, I didn't want to leave. I didn't want to leave you, but I had to. And I think for me, that moment really amplified not only just the importance of his children, but the importance of why he had to do what he had to do. Um, I think it spoke to the heart of the themes of the film, uh, that family is important, that love transcends time and space, and that when it comes down to it, whether we want to be altruistic or not, or whether we think we're doing something for the greater good, we're going to default to the love of those closest to us and do anything for them or anyone for anything else. And it's also a picture of how Coop struggles with wondering if you made the right choice. Uh, I think, Andrew, you mentioned from The Dark Knight Rises that he had something to die for. And so he, as a result, had something to live for. And I think yeah. because he had that attachment to his children, it made him that much more important and that much more of a, of a, of a leader that because he had something to go home to, something to strive for, um, <clears throat> there was that sense of saying, you're going to follow this guy because even though his motives might be for himself and for his family, the end result is for all of humanity. And I thought there was just so much packed into that scene and the way that he emoted that on his face with his crying, he, he just said a ton of stuff without even talking. And uh, I've had that ugly cry moment <laughs> with, with, you know, several times with, with different things. And, and I, I know that emotional response, but to quite literally have the weight of the universe on you in that moment uh, and to hear from your daughter who's now grown up and to hear her basically say, I hate you, you know, you let me down. I mean, golly, oh, it just, it, yeah. it's killer. It's killer. So that was my connecting point. <laughs> well, yeah, uh, that's a great note to end on. Uh, you know, also that, when Case made those jokes, you know, oh, I'm that was kidding. so good. No, you know that moment. <laughs> that moment when he's leaving is the other is probably one of the most. I would say yeah. maybe my second second ugly cry moment for me is when uh, he's leaving and just it's like a one or two second shot and he reaches down and looks under the blanket. Yeah, <laughs> I die. I die every time because it's just like. How, how do you, I, I just, oh, I, I mean, I have like such a, a mixture of respect and fury for him in that moment, um, as a fellow parent or whatever. Okay. Done, done with emotional stuff. So we've, we've gone through the emotional aspects of this. All right. Well, this has been awesome. Um, Andrew, it's been phenomenal having you here. I love getting to talk to you. And this has been great because our last conversation, we were kind of more doing a, um, an essay like conversation and this time sure. we got to talk in depth about a film that that we know you love so where can people find you where can people if they want to continue the conversation and talk to you about this or any other movies or any of the work that you're doing out there uh, where can they do that yeah you can follow all of the all of the mental gymnastics and explorations that i'm doing in written form uh, at Screen Rant, just ScreenRant.com. And uh, easiest way to keep up with uh, what I'm doing would be to follow me on Twitter at uh, Andrew B. Dice, B-D-Y-C-E. And give me your opinions. Let me know if I'm wrong. Let me know if you think it's silly that I cried. Uh, I cried a lot, so it would be really silly. 
So, um, yeah. And if you uh, want to know my thoughts on other movies, I'm usually pretty forward because, as you can probably tell from this podcast, I like to hear myself speak. <laughs> We all do. I think. I think all of us that uh, take this. Here, up. here. Do you have here, a podcast yeah. too? By the way, are you still? Uh, are you still doing Total Geek All? Oh yeah, we we're just taking a, a little break because the movie season has gotten insane. Um, we had to leave Super Bowl parties to go work uh, on what was dropped during it. But um, but we'll, we'll be. I'll be tweeting about that when the new one is up. Sure. Okay. Good. Patrick. Yes, what, sir. What about you? So if you want. If you want to find me, you can find me at Shoeless Patch, S-H-O-E-L-E-S-S-P-A-T-C-H. I'm at Twitter, Facebook. I'm also on Instagram, but you can uh, visit my website, thisispatch.com, to find out more about who I am, uh, my hobbies, and all that kind of stuff. Wanted to let you guys know the hashtag FeelThisFilm uh, poll will be opening on February 10th. It'll be up for a few days. So continue throwing out those uh, those movie suggestions for our Feel this film episode that will be on February 19th. Next week, we're going to also cover our new release, our first movie in the theaters in, uh, was this over a month now? Yep, yeah, first one of 2017. Yeah, and I think we're both excited about this. It's going to be uh, a really exciting one called Lego Batman. And our, I think we're both. Our collective favorite superhero. We can We can table that. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) we can both say we like will arnett let's just say that we like will arnett and we like lego so there there there's two things we can agree on (laughs) so yeah uh look forward to that next week and uh, get your feel this film movie suggestions in so we can uh, create our poll and uh, we look forward to hearing what you guys have there did you mention where people could find you yes you can do it again yeah or they can just rewind this go back 45 seconds. That's fine. We can go back. Just love and you'll go back in time and you'll be able to hear Patrick say that. Um, Look for me in the bookshelf. (laughs) Along with that feel this film note, um, we are getting quite a few of the recommendations flowing in now. Uh, So I want to just give you a heads up. Please keep giving us those. This is not going to be the last time that we do this. We do have at least two episodes planned in the next month or so. Uh, for feel this film listener picks. So when you do get those in, you'll need to be a part of the Facebook group in order to do the voting, uh, to pick one of those films for which one's going to be on there. So make sure you follow the links to the Facebook group, join it's, it's easy and it's open. You don't have to go through any hoops to do that or be approved. We'll just automatically click yes. Uh, and if you don't see your suggestion on the first poll, just know that we're, we're working through those. We can only put, I think 10 on each poll, uh, but we will we will do that and get to each one in time. Uh, the other thing we wanted to make a note of, uh, our Feelers Choice Awards. Uh, the nominations were made. Thank you to everybody who helped us g- decide what was going to be on the ballot. And by the time you're listening to this, that post will be live. You can find it on our blog at feelinfilm.com. You can find the link to the survey on our Twitter, on our Facebook, probably on our Instagram as well. Uh, you have until midnight on February the 21st to vote in the 2017 Feelers Choice Awards. It's pretty good stuff. I got to admit, there are some differences from the Oscars, <laughs> some that I expected. Uh, some of the more popular films like Rogue One and maybe Fantastic Beasts, things like that, got some nominations, uh, whereas the Oscars tend to avoid those movies. And uh, there were some that I was very, very, very surprised by. 
uh, as in uh, actresses missing that I just I, I blew my mind um, completely. So uh, check those out, please. We want as many votes as possible uh, to make this a, a real community experience and see what all of your favorites were from the year of 2016. Uh, if you want to talk to me on Facebook or Twitter or anywhere else in the World Wide Web, you can find me at Aaron L. White, A-A-R-O-N, E-L-W-H-I-T-E. As well, you can find the show at Feelin' Film, F-E-E-L-I-N, F-I-L-M, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, as well as, as mentioned, feelinfilm.com. Thank you for listening. We know this has been a super long episode, but we hope it was worth it. I know we enjoyed the heck out of it. Uh, Until next time, as always, stay positive. And keep feeling film.